In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we welcome you to the All Souls Sermon Podcast. The people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region in shadow of death, light is sprung up. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Zebulun and Naphtali. They are names which seem to come to us from a long time ago and a galaxy far, far away. Place names that are as unreal to us as Tatooine and Alderaan, those planets in the Star Wars universe. But notwithstanding their strangeness, they are names which evoke a sacred history and geography. And because of this, I want us to see Zebulun and Naphtali Name a landscape as intimate and familiar to us as the back of our hand. Let's start with the names themselves. They have a very long history. There are first the names of two of the sons of the prophet, or the patriarch Jacob, who was himself the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Jacob, you'll remember, had 12 sons. Naphtali was number six, and Zebulun was number ten of the twelve. Little Zebi and Naphi, as I'm sure their mothers called them, were half-brothers, Jacob's sons by different wives. And when they grew up, they would become, along with their other brothers, the heads of the eponymous twelve tribes of Israel. The names of the sons became the names of the tribes. Much later, when the Lord had brought the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land, each of the tribes was given a particular region of the land. It was a bit like the way in which the several Native American tribes have jurisdictional areas in Oklahoma, the Chickasaw along the I-35 corridor, the Choctaw in the southeast, and so on. The areas allotted to Zebulun and Naphtali lay in the northernmost region of Canaan, to the northwest of the Sea of Galilee. And so, the names of the tribes became place names, just as in Oklahoma, tribal names are also the names of places, like Shawnee and Muscogee. Later again still, in 722 BC to be exact, Zebulun and Naphtali were among the ten northern tribes of Israel taken into exile by the Assyrians. And from thence, the tribes disappear from history, losing all distinct identity, lost among the nations. Their names became a byword, so that the prophet Isaiah, writing after the exile of the tribes, could speak of their ancestral land, the land of Zebulun and of Naphtali, as the land of deep darkness, the land of the shadow of death. By the time of Jesus, all this was ancient history, and the region had become known as Galilee, and many Gentiles were settled there. But St. Matthew in his gospel still calls the region by its ancient names. This would have been a bit like you or I saying that Paris isn't the land of the Franks, or calling Istanbul Constantinople or Byzantium, which, by the way, reminds me of some lines from a great song by the band They Might Be Giants, which I hope you know. Even old New York was once New Amsterdam. Why they changed it, I can't say. People just liked it better that way. 
My point is that St. Matthew deliberately uses the old place names, Zebulun and Naphtali, names which evoke the whole history of Israel. And he does so for a specific purpose. He wants to show that Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost, wherever they may be. He draws our attention to the fact that the Lord Jesus began his ministry in this place, in the land of the ten lost tribes, in the land of unfaithfulness and oppression, Galilee of the Gentiles, because he wants us to see that Christ has come to find what has been lost and to collect what has been scattered. He wants us to see that Christ has come to redeem Israel from all her sins and come also to manifest himself to the Gentiles, to be the savior of the whole world, to draw all people to himself, that he's come as a light shining in the region and shadow of death. So St. Matthew uses the ancient place names to invoke the ancient prophecy of Isaiah, found in Isaiah chapter 9, where it is written, In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the later time he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. For thou hast broke the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. St. Matthew wants us to see that the Lord Jesus fulfilled these words when he came into Galilee to begin his ministry. He fulfilled them and shone in that land when he preached repentance, when he proclaimed the arrival of the kingdom of God, God's realm. He fulfilled them when he called his first disciples to follow him and to join him in his work of drawing men as in a fisher's net to himself. He fulfilled these words when he went about all Galilee, healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And he fulfilled them above all when he was crucified for us and rose again. And he fulfills them still whenever he shines in places of darkness and death. The people which sat in darkness saw great light. And to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. Where is this region of darkness and desolation? And who are the people which dwell there? They are you and me. And we know that region like the back of our hand. Zebulun and Naphtali are regions of the soul. They are the dark places in the geography of our lives, places of sin and shame, places of oppression and poverty, places of damage and disease. Where are the Zebulun's and Naphtali's in your life? Where are the dark regions of your soul? Can you locate in your soul the slough of despair, or the mountain of pride, or the abyss of anger, or the desert of lust? Maybe your Zebulun is a desolate land littered with the ruins of your faith. 
Maybe your Naphtali is overgrown with worldly cares and concerns. Maybe it's that dark valley where you've hidden your secret sin, that exam you cheated on, those text messages your spouse would not wish to see, those business deals your conscience has buried. Where are the dark and devastated places of your life? My brothers and sisters, the good news is is that it's in precisely those places which Christ has come to shine his light. It's those places in our lives that he has come to redeem and to heal. He comes to shine precisely in the region and shadow of death, that he would shine even in the deepest, darkest, most hidden corners of your life. He died for you to set you free from sin and shame. He comes to gather what you have scattered, to find what you have lost, to break your yoke and to break the rod of your oppressor. He's come to repair your broken heart and to make you whole. And indeed, As baptized Christians, Christ is already at that work in your life and in mine. His light has already dawned over previously devastated regions of our lives. To be sure, in all of our souls, there are areas that remain in deep darkness. But there are also those areas where Christ has already begun to scatter that darkness. Where are those places in your lives? Where are the formerly broken places, those devastated, desolate places that Christ has begun to heal? These are the places to remember and memorialize because they are evidence of God's amazing grace. They're places where grief has already begun to give place to joy, places that show forth God's praise. And we ought, and it's a good and joyful thing, to give God thanks and praise for precisely those places in our lives. And we also ought to tell others about those places so that they too might join in offering praise and thanksgiving to our blessed Redeemer. It's a deeply encouraging thing to do. The other day I experienced some of this for myself when I visited a parishioner in hospital She was in a great deal of pain, but she shared with me how Christ had been at work in the midst of the darkness of her sufferings, shining there in the darkness of her pain, and revealing to her ways in which she'd been withholding forgiveness from someone that she loved. And in revealing that to her, Christ was already at work softening her heart and making her capable of forgiving that person. Her hospital bed had become a holy place of prayer, a place from which she humbly proclaimed what God had done for her. My soul was deeply encouraged. And I want to say that this bearing witness to what God has done is central to our vocation as Christians. St. Paul says, Christ sent me to preach the gospel, to lift up the cross of Christ, to point to Christ crucified. And that's not just a vocation for an apostle. 
we too are sent to proclaim Christ crucified and risen. And to do so not as a past event, but as a present reality in our lives. This is what Michael Ramsey means when he says Christians are sent to be the place where the passion of Jesus Christ is known and where witness is born to the resurrection from the dead. It's what we also recognize in today's collect when we ask for the grace to answer readily the call of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and proclaim to all people the good news of God's salvation, that we and the whole world may perceive the glory of his marvelous works. And it's what we're called to as a parish, to proclaim to all souls the good news of God's salvation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of All Souls Episcopal Church. For service times and more information, go to allsoulsokc.com. God be with you.